This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with three for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. Beyond the pitch, beyond the results, we're here to connect fans, getting them to embrace the highs and lows of supporting your club because we're not just fans, we're a team. With two in three football fans having struggled with their mental health, we understand that life off the pitch can present its own challenges. That's why we're committed to ensuring you have the tools to stay connected with your friends and fellow supporters. Take a moment to connect with your mates. A simple text or an open conversation can make a world of difference. And if they don't respond right away, don't hesitate to follow up. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. This week, the Clarets rely on our old friend VAR to give us a lesson in basic anatomy. It was Bournemouth at home, and this is the Known and Ever podcast. Wow, 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 wow. Where do I start? That was absolutely incredible from the Clarets. 3-0 Burnley. Dwight McNeil for me today was just on another planet. Absolutely incredible. That entire second half mostly for me, he was just standing out every time we went forward, dancing past men like they weren't even there. And I was so buzzing that he's managed to get that goal. And what a finish it was. Wow, 3-0. Vidra, incredible again. Just runs around like a terrier. There's no stopping that man at the moment. Keep him in the side. Gerard slots away the penalty. Absolutely brilliant from him again today. He was superb as well. We're up to eight and we're three points off the Champions League. <laughs> wow, I don't know what I don't know what to say. I just have to start saving my pennies. We're booking them flights in August, I'm telling you that. Three points off the Champions League. Hello and welcome back to another jam-packed episode of the No Name Never podcast. I am your host, Natalie Bromley, and joining me this week on our panel are Tom Tom Whitaker, who is known as Tom Claret, I think, on Twitter. Um, and joining him this week, fresh from, and I don't even know where to start from this, having to postpone his pancake party is George Poole. Now, George, we've given you some stick in our group chat today on this. I'm not letting you get away with this. Please explain to our listeners how a grown man at university has a pancake party. Right, let me get this absolutely clear. It's So it's like, it's not, it's not a party. I, I may have used the wrong words. It's like a pancake social. So we've got pancake making, but also beer involved. So it's basically just like a university version of pancake day. And let me tell you, it was bloody good. The pancakes were incredible. I'm taking a lot of credit for today. <laughs> I have two main things with this. First and foremost, 
Pancake Social, don't ever come on the Nun and Never podcast and utter those words in the same sentence again, young George, because we're going to have to have words. <laughs> and secondly, beer and pancakes do not mix. I think Tom and I are very clear on this. But either way, we are delighted you managed to postpone your pancake party, even though you have eaten eight of them before we <laughs> came on air. So we might have to let you off to go and barf at some point. Um, but we're very glad you joined us. Um, and listeners, this week we are, of course, debating that bizarrely wonderful albeit somewhat farcical game at Turf Moor at the weekend where the Clarets um, booked up an absolutely fantastic home win at 3-0 against a very beleaguered and hilariously um, still Eddie Howside, Bournemouth um, it definitely had its talking points but I think before we get into those I think all of us want to just sit and relish in what was quite frankly a very dominant and very superb performance Tom by the Clarets yeah, I think um, first half Bournemouth probably shaded it. I think Dar said that himself as well. Um, but what was really heartening was the way we kicked on in the second half. We looked like we were going to score every time we came forward. Uh, Vidra took his goal really well. Um, obviously, we had, well, I'm sure we'll talk about it in detail, but we had the look with the penalty. But after that, it was it could have been six or seven. I don't think Bournemouth would have complained. I heard Eddie Howe saying, you know, the heads went down because of the decision there's still half an hour left to play I thought that really sums up what the the image that a lot of us have about Eddie Howe sides that are too easy to throw in the towel they're mentally weak we talked before the game on last week's podcast that we've got the edge over Bournemouth for that reason and it really showed yeah we were ripping him to shreds McNeil was fantastic uh, it really showed um, again something we spoke about last week playing the balls around the corners down the channel and the, the extra movement and pace we've got in the front two without Wooden Barnes that really came to fore, especially in the second half. Vidriel was popping up everywhere. Uh, Rodriguez finding pockets of space as well. Missed so many chances in that second half. Yeah, as I say, it could have been six or seven and, and Bournemouth couldn't have complained. Yeah, definitely. I think I was uh, absolutely wetting myself. I think the comment that you put in our group chat on Saturday and uh, you touched on it there and that this Bournemouth side have a, a heart of a flea, which I believe was the expression you used. Um, I mean, it was interesting to hear those comments. I mean, I've never particularly put Eddie Howe in the bracket of strong um, manager who will fight, you know, and and, and rally the troops on onto a real rele- um, relegation battle. He just doesn't seem to be that stronger leader to me. He's clearly got other skills and he's clearly, um, you know, had a very successful campaign at Bournemouth over the last few years, but he doesn't rally me as that kind of player who will sort out those kind of issues. Now, can you imagine a Burnley side being that mentally weak? I know we have done it, but, you know, you just wouldn't expect Dyche, you know, so when I say we've done it, we've had games where we've not been quite there and needed to pick ourselves up. But on the whole, there's a discipline and a resilience with Dyche side that this Eddie Howe side just does not have. And it doesn't surprise me to see them at the bottom of the table at the moment and, and struggling that relegation fight. Um, <clears throat> George, one thing I would mention, I guess, just in terms of general um, play, was just, again, the second week running was just some really poor conditions that the team had to play in. Um, and I think, I, I can't remember my mind up whether that first half display, I mean, yeah, Tom's right, they were a little bit out of sorts, while, whether the wind and the conditions played more of a part than we thought because Burnley were having to play into the wind in that first half and I know Pup's kicking was a bit all over the place and it was really difficult to get a, the ball on the ground and play it. Or do you think it was just something slightly more do you think Bournemouth maybe a little bit more proactive than we were in bringing the game to us yeah I think Bournemouth were actually um 
a really good side in the first half. I thought we were both going at it. Both teams were playing pretty good football. And I'd probably agree with you both that Bournemouth edged the first half. But I would put a bit of emphasis on the um, the conditions at Turf. And me and my dad have a really good view of this. Um, our season tickets are like the front row of the James Hargreaves upper. So we're looking like on the halfway line. What most people just don't realise, because you never think about it, is that the pitch slopes massively downhill towards the Jimmy Mack end. And when, when you're in the sort of seats we have, you can see it because the dugout, the Bob Lord stand on the other side, it's it's so much deeper uh, at the Jimmy Mack end, the, like the wall's so much higher than it is at the cricket field end because the pitch slopes down. So that, with the wind obviously going with us in the second half, probably did help us a lot. And it, and it was, that slope is something Stan Turner used to talk about quite a lot, my dad told me. Um, but from where we're sat, most people you don't you don't realise it's never something you think about, but with the slope of the pitch and the wind in the second half, I think it probably did help us get our back backs up and um, sort of go forward so freely like we did. It was brilliant to watch. Yeah, it was, and I, like I say, I think it was always going to be a difficult condition to play in, but I, I don't think I'd known that about the pitch. That's that's really interesting. Um, well, let's go straight into it, Tom, because. As as George alluded to there, Bournemouth were the stronger side in that first half and they did set off really well and really positive and they were attacking us constantly and, and actually wouldn't let us settle on the ball at all. And that resulted in what we thought was quite an early goal where Josh King put the ball in the back of the net. Um, and that's after, actually. I think there was a chance even earlier than that where Nick Pope had to make um, a fantastic save. I think there was a, a cross that had ricocheted off the back of Tarke. Um, <clears throat> wasn't, everybody was calling for offside and it absolutely wasn't offside. So it would have stood if it had gone in the back of the net. And uh, Pope had to to come out and, and I think he saved it with his foot. Maybe his left foot came down. So we'd already been warned once in the early stages that Bournemouth were going to attack us quite rigorously. And then not long after that, King puts the ball in the net. Um, <clears throat> the first controversial decision of the game, I guess. Um, and actually probably the one that most people are looking at that maybe Bournemouth were dealt quite a harsh decision here. Um, in the build-up to, I think it was from a corner that King um, put the ball in the back of the net, but it looked like um, just before he did that, there'd been a handball by Philip Billing. Now, this is causing much debate, and this is where we have to look at anatomy lesson. Now, I want to, before we come on to Tom's analysis of this, I just want to read an email from um, listener and friend of the show, John Steele, who emailed me on, oh, 9.51 Sunday morning, clearly needing to get things off his chest. And I feel like this might have been a bit, a little bit of therapy here, but I'm going <clears> to <throat> I'm gonna read you John's view of the incident, and then we're going to have a look and see what we think. So, John writes to us, Dear Natalie, I feel like the archetypal, archetypal, I don't know what that word is, I'm so sorry. I feel like the typical disgruntled telegraph reader writing to complain about the biased BBC. But after watching last night's match of the day, I would like to ensure that your podcast is a little bit more informed than the BBC pundits thereon. Well, thank you very much, John, that's much appreciated. He goes on to say there are two important points that seemed to be beyond the collective wisdom of the match of the day experts. First, as with Lamb, the shoulder is a joint. For the anatomical nerds, brackets, and Stato Dave, brackets, the scapula, which is the shoulder, connects the humerus, which is the upper arm bone, with the clavicle, which is the collarbone. 
he's really testing my language skills here. The trio of match of the day quack doctors wow, were continually prodding and pointing to sections of the upper arm and questioning whether it really is part of the arm. Now, it may be news to them, but as every CSE biology student is aware, the upper arm is, as the name suggests, the arm. The second aspect of their new anatomical discovery (laughs) that was beyond them is the impact of the offside rule. At the moment, the VAR line is drawn in line with the best medical practice at the shoulder joint. Now, imagine the outrage if Arsenal or Leicester had a goal disallowed because the VAR line was drawn not at the top of the arm, brackets, shoulder joint, but instead at some indeterminate point partway down the arm in the general location of where the quacks were prodding. What would Lineker have to say if Vardy's offside against Arsenal, not because of his nose or big toe, but because some indeterminate point on his extended upper arm was the wrong side of the defender. The post-match debate with Arsenal pyjamas, Ian Wright, would be worth watching. Pyjamas? I'm not sure he means to say pyjamas. I think that is a typo. The post-match debate with Arsenal's pundit, maybe, Ian Wright, would be worth watching. His tetanus jab injection mark was in front of Bellerin, so clearly offside. Yours sincerely, Outrage from York, a.k.a. John Steele. So, John, I did my best with that email. It was quite, I was having to read it off a very small screen on time. So, John's view, very firmly, is that it was, in fact, the correct decision and the ball hit Billings' um, arm, not his shoulder, and VAR was correct. That is definitely not the common view across the board in national media and pundits and analysis, as most people seem to suggest it, it is chest maybe it wasn't a handball tom let's start with you what do we make about bournemouth's first var yeah showed it on the big screen and uh uh basically all you saw was someone standing in front of philip billing um with uh yeah that's supposed to be helpful or illustrative for the fans in the stadium apparently but uh you know uh wasn't complaining the goal was disallowed it reminded me a little bit of the villa game as well um the fact that the team didn't really kick on from the uh, the impetus, but that's probably a different point. Uh, it didn't really kick on from the let off. Um, but having seen it back subsequently, so as I say, the screen wasn't very illustrative of, of what it had been disallowed for. I, to me, it's very harsh. Um, the the angles that I've seen, sometimes it looks like it's coming off his shoulder. Sometimes it looks like it's maybe coming off the top of his arm. Um, when it's sped up, it looks different to when it's slowed down. From what I understand, there was an arm. Um, uh, an angle that the VAR saw that was pretty clear that it was his arm. I personally haven't seen that angle. If that is the case, then then fair enough. But it would be nice to be shown that, especially on the screen. It'd be nice if you could be shown the definitive angle as opposed to one that's not very clear. Um, but I could understand why there was a bit of scepticism in the match of the day studio about that one, I have to say. Um, and I could understand why Bournemouth were quite gutted as well. I think if that had been, uh, if that decision had gone against us I'd have been quite annoyed as well so yeah for me I think of the two that that one's much more debatable and uh, for me I think we've got away with one there. Yeah I think I'm probably sitting in that camp as well it's interesting really because when you are the side that the decision has gone for you you kind of don't really care about how unhelpful the, the images are on screen I agree with you when I was 
and I was looking at the screen, I was laughing, just going like, what, what the hell has that been off, ruled off, uh, has been disallowed for, but ha ha, never mind, let's all laugh at Eddie Howe. Um, but obviously, I can imagine from the Bournemouth fans' perspective, they must have just been looking at, and I guess the players on the pitch as well will be looking up going, I, I genuinely don't know what that is. Um, so I, I definitely sit with Camp Tom, Um even if you try and apply the very strict letter of the law um, and say, well, it has to be handball, I definitely don't want it to be handball. And it just it just wasn't clear cut to me. I just don't think that or any of the angles that I've seen in any of the replay make it conclusive that it was handball. Um, that said, George, I think you sit on the other side of the camp, don't you? I think you're, you're quite confident that this was a handball. Yeah, I think I'm Camp John, the, the emailer, which I found was incredible to listen to. So thanks for John for emailing in and giving us all a biology lesson because it's well needed. But I, I thought it was a handball just because the, the, the strict letter of the law, obviously, if it touches a, an attacker's arm during the, you know, built to a goal now, it's just automatically a handball. Um, I, I agree the angles weren't really helpful. Um, and because obviously I was watching it on TV, so I, I probably got a lot better chance to see it than you live at the time. And the thing that that was bugging me is they never they never really slowed it down and um, like paused it at the point of contact, if you get me. So it was hard to see whereabouts it hit him. But I do think it's sort of hit around where the um, the, the, the uh, sponsor on the sleeve is. And so it looked, therefore, for me, that it just ballooned off his arm and to, towards Wilson or King, who was going to slot it home. So I think by the letter of the law, it probably is a, as a handball. Obviously, it's really harsh for me that it's been given, but I'd prefer it to just be like, I'd prefer this rule at the moment than say one that was a bit, you don't know really, you know, say say they went to a handball rule was if it was intentional. And then you've always got the sort of grey area of, did he mean to do that? Didn't he? So I think it's probably helpful that they've got the rule as it is now, but they probably should make it um, even for the attackers and the defenders. Because obviously if it hits a defender's arm at the moment, um, it doesn't really matter still. So maybe if they just tidied that rule up a bit, but for me, maybe it's because I'm biased and I'm glad we got the decision. I'm in camp handball for this one. Good stuff. I think this obviously, I guess, evidences that even with VAR, these decisions are really, really tricky. You, you know, you've got people who who have had the decision go in their favour are still not in 100% agreement which way it went. So I, I agree with um, Tom. Um, I, I would have been furious, actually if that had gone against us, I would have still been annoyed about it now. So I can definitely share Bournemouth fans' pain for that first goal. Um, <clears throat> Tom's just put a really funny comment, actually, in our show notes to basically say he's just been re- rethinking back about John's email. Ian writes, Arsenal pyjamas. He wonders whether that's a reference to Gibson's Middlesbrough pyjamas from last week. If it is... That is ridiculous in that that will be two podcasts on a row where our own joke has come to bite me and I've not picked up on it. I know Dave, Statman Dave, put a reference to pyjamas in the preview show following Richard's hilarious comment last week. And it took me ages to get it and he was just literally face palming at me. And if that that is another Ben Gibson's Middlesbrough pyjamas reference, then I'm going to quit because I'm clearly useless. Um, Right. George, let's stick with you with this one because we're going to now move away from that first disallowed goal. And luckily, um, the Clarets did start to get into the game and we ended up um, really with some really exciting attacking play. Of course, with both Chris Wood and Ashley Barnes out injured for this game, we were in uncharted territory 
well, certainly from the start, in playing a front two of Jay Rodriguez and Matty Vidra. Um, we didn't know really how that was going to play. As it turns out, it was absolutely fantastic. And we just played with a lot more creative flair. We just played with a bit more, um, just a bit more creativity and a bit more on the deck you know it wasn't just direct and we were passing the ball around and it for me having those two up front really gave certainly um Dwight McNeil an opportunity to put some fantastic crosses in um and we ended up well again Matty could have maybe had a hat-trick in this game but his opening goal was just a thing of beauty it was really brilliant to watch. Um, I'm not in the the sort of camp which is like, oh, we always play a long ball. It's really boring to watch because obviously we we play it over the top, but it's not sort of a standard like your 2012 Stoke team just hoofing up to crouch. It's more just like playing it over the top for Wood to run onto. But I think you definitely saw a massive difference at the weekend with Jerrod and Vidra because we were playing it on the ground through the midfield up to say Jerrod or Vids that was coming dropping deep to pick it up then to spray it out wide to McNeil. It was really good to watch and you saw it. It brought out the best in McNeil, who had probably one of I think one of his best games in a claret shirt. He was absolutely amazing. But it was it was really exciting to watch us attacking at the weekend. And I agree with what you were saying at the start of the show that it looked like we could score every time we could go forward. Uh, Vidra in particular thought it was absolutely outstanding all game. Even in the first half, I, I think I tweeted at half-time saying, Vidra looking so sharp. He's like a terrier running round. He just wants the ball, wants to put himself in a good position. And you, you, you could just tell when you're watching him. His confidence is up after last week and it, he's absolutely buzzing to impress. Uh, I think, I think it was, it's only right for us to make mention of uh, the chances he had in the first half. Um, there was one where... It, it was it was sort of all of his own making where he'd gone over the top, cut cut back and passed a couple of players and it it did it did open up for him and he probably should have scored at the cricket field end. But I think we can let him off just because it was his own chance created. But to the actual goal in the second half, he did so well to keep a calm head. Um when he went through and cut back to then um take it over the goalkeeper. Obviously not the best defending, probably shouldn't have slid in there. But once he's turned turned past his man you could see it on one of the match of the day at camera angles. He, he's looked at the goalkeeper and he can tell he's diving towards the goalkeeper's left. And you can see his eyes, just see it. And then he chips it over him towards the near near post instead. Uh, such a brilliant finish. And I thought him and J-Rod looked really promising at the weekend. I've seen today on Twitter, Dash has said something in his press conference uh, this week, saying something about how their, their partnership was outstanding at the weekend. And it's just a nice change to hear something positive about Vidra coming from Daesh, because obviously he talked about it last week, having a, a couple of issues in the past, but it's all looking positive and I'd like to see him start again at the weekend. Yeah, I suspect he probably will as well. I, I think now we've got this fantastic partnership up front, we don't need to rush Chris Wood back. And also, given our ridiculously healthy position in the league, we don't need to rush Chris, Chris Wood back. We've got a fantastic opportunity here. Um Tom, I think everybody in the ground was delighted for, for Matty. And I think it was so cute listening to his post-match interviews where he was saying, I think he said at one point he could, he was listening to the um, the, the, the stadium announcer give the team news out before the game. And he said, oh, I think they left me to last. And then I heard the crowd cheer and it gave me a real buzz. And, you know, and he's clearly playing with a smile on his face. And he, he, he seems to be very grateful for the Burnley fans who have stuck with him over 18 months, even though he's not 
has until now been able to reward us with some goals and performances, not from his own fault, of course, he's not been playing. Um, But certainly his performance on the pitch, as, as George said, he could have had two or three goals and there was a couple he was really unlucky. But there were a couple of times where he just did that step over and just put the defend. I mean, the defender they didn't defend very well for his for his actual goal, but that step over where he, he just steps, puts it onto his other foot, and creates a ridiculous amount of space around him. And I don't think we have anybody else in the squad who can do that and just open up that creative opportunity from that position. Yeah, I don't think uh, Ward and Barnes have got the low centre of gravity to be able to cut inside like that, to be fair. Um, <laughs> he did. Uh, I think it did help that Bournemouth's defenders didn't seem to realise that that's what he was going to do every single time. I couldn't believe in the second half for the goal, the way that lad dived in. I don't think Vidra even sort of dummied at that point. I think he just flung himself to the floor. He was doing that every time, cutting inside Vidra. But he's obviously got the feet for it, like you say, quick feet, good turn, turn of pace. Uh, and like you say, it's a different option for us to ring off the bench. I noticed as well you were talking about um, he was really appreciative of the support he'd had from the crowd. You should remember when he came on for the Peterborough game, he got a really good reception and uh, Sean Dyche was quite sarcastic about it after the game. I think he said something along the lines of, oh, I didn't realise, you know, we had a wheel beater on around to, to get that sort of a reception. But uh, I wonder if he looks back now and he's quite grateful that perhaps that kind of support is helped Vidra keep his spirits up a bit, helped keep his head right, uh, keep him match ready, and obviously we're reaping the rewards now. Yeah, definitely. I think we talked about this at the podcast um, at the time after Peterborough, that we were a little bit disappointed in what we felt was a rare PR misstep from Deitch. I mean, to me, it feels like something's gone on with them two in the background because it just... I think Gibson's a different kettle of fish because there are legitimate reasons and and the keeper situations as well. There's legitimate reasons why they won't play. But there have been so many times in this last 18 months where we've struggled up front and, you know, we had a ridiculous situation where we put Kevin Long on up front instead of Vidra. So I think either... I don't think it doesn't feel like it's an argument because it does feel like they've got a relationship there, but it certainly feels like Vidya was perhaps not adapting himself to play in the way that Deitch wanted him to, and and <clears throat> I guess holding himself out in training sessions and having that graft among him. But it certainly seems to have happened now, and and I do I do like the fact that Matt is playing with a big smile on his face and that he is just playing with his confidence, and I just. I kind of don't want him to get dropped from the team now. I want him to, to have an extended run just purely because I think it's just reward for how hard he's worked. Um, right, Tom. No, shall we go back to George? George, let's go back to you. Because once we'd gone 1-0, um, we found ourselves nearly looking at an equaliser, which I think at the time probably came against the run of play. Um, we were in our... Um, in their box, sorry, trying to, I think it was a corner maybe, or we were certainly trying to put the ball in the box. Um, big shouts for handball, um, not given by Mike Dean, and Bournemouth fly away with an absolutely ruthless break um, and score what is honestly an absolutely fantastic goal at the other end. Um, I can't quit my mind, quite, 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 pee, 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 I cannot speak tonight. I can't quite make my mind up whether the Burnley players had just switched off because they were so incensed that the handball hadn't been given the other end or whether or not we were just very ill-disciplined or whether we were just defended poorly. But 
it's a good job it didn't stand because that Bournemouth goal was was superb. Um, but of course, we have VAR decision number two. Now, this one, George, I think is a little bit clearer cut, don't you think? Yes, for me, this one's a clear handball. Uh, the actual breakaway itself, I think it was just a case of, I think it was um, after one of our corners and it might have been the second phase of play of the corner, but we were completely out of position. We'd, we'd got quite a few people forward because I know when they broke at the halfway line, Ben Mee just about missed one player and that left them with Tarks had to either go to the man or and then leave Harry Wilson clear to score as he did or just go to Wilson and the guy has a, a straight straight view of goal. So it was just one of them where you can't really help it on the counter-attack, the defending-wise for me. But the handball itself, um, definitely, I think, is... The, it's been crossed into the back post. Um, obviously, Adam Smith's there and Hendricks running in behind him. I think Smith's either overrun the ball or the wind's held it up because he's clearly up, uh, overran it. So he's put his left arm up in the air. You could tell, you, he knew what he was doing. It's just an instinct, get get your body in the way of it. It's hit him, as I said before, on the on the sponsor's logo on the sleeve, which is on the sleeve, which is covering the upper arm. So it's obviously a handball for me. Um, it, it's, he's had all the intention in the world to stop it with his arm. And I'm, I'm, this, for me, this is why VAR is needed. This is a decision that wasn't picked up on field. They've gone up the other end and scored. It's one all. It's a completely different game then. So when obviously it's been brought back and we've scored to make it 2-0. Um, I found it funny watching how on the sidelines this was this was tearing him to shreds. Obviously, one minute it's one all. The next it's 2-0 to Burnley and the game's looking over with. But for me, this is perfect use of VAR. Uh, just a quick mention of Mike Dean. Uh, I don't, I don't mean to plug another podcast, but it's not really like we're, we're competition yet uh, with the Peter Couch podcast. He had, they had Mike Dean on last week. Absolutely fascinating. Listen, it, it does make you realise that these people are people at the end of the day. So for any listeners that haven't listened to it yet, I definitely uh, keep an eye out for that one. And I've always liked Mike Dean myself because he's always done us a favour even stretching back to Wembley when he sent off one of their Sheffield United players towards the end. But perfect use for VAR for me, and it's definitely a handball. <laughs> there you go. No one and ever podcast needing commission for promoting Peter Crouch's podcast. Um, Tom, I think most people are very much of the view that it was a penalty. I don't really know why he doesn't just head it out or what, what he's trying to do there. I think it's it's got to make it worse that they went to the other end and scored I think that has got to be an aggravating factor in all of this I think if they'd have missed that chance or you know it had gone out of play for a throw-in and they'd missed it or something I don't think we would have been talking about this as a, as a decision at all because it's so obviously a handball that nobody have done it it's it's obviously an issue that they'd gone down the other side scored an equaliser a brilliant goal and then like you say the psychological impact as, as Howe said himself of thinking that they got it back to 1-1 one, one, and then suddenly they're 2-0 down for a penalty. Um, that, that's surely the issue here. But it was going to happen at some point this season, surely. Yeah, I think you're absolutely bang on. Uh, I think for me, all the talk's been, oh, another VAR controversy, another shocker for VAR. I agree with George. I think VAR has done exactly the job it's there to do, which is to overturn a very clear and obvious error from the referee. I think the controversy should be, how are the referee and linesman not giving that as a penalty in the first place? You know, the cross comes over. He clearly sticks his arm out. Like you said, I don't know why he's doing it because he could have left it and go for a goal kick. Maybe he's trying. He's thinking, I'll get this back up the pitch and start the counter-attack, which he obviously does with his arm. But 
How is that not being given us a penalty straight away? It's obvious. It's blatant. And when Bournemouth were running through, you know, Ben Mee got done in the middle and Tarkovsky was waving Wilson through. I'm not, uh, I suppose he's got he's got a couple of two men at the same time. I wasn't sure what he was doing. But I was I was sitting there thinking, don't matter if they score because they're going to give a penalty on the VAR because it's obvious. And uh, lo and behold, it, it was given. So everyone's saying, oh, you know, it's, um, it, you know, VAR is flawed, Bournemouth. It's, you know, it's such a tough, tough one to take and all this. The blame should be with Mike Dean and with the linesmen because they've missed giving the very obvious penalty. And I thought it was similar actually to the, the Lo Celso one, you know, the, the Tottenham game, the VAR didn't give that, that red card. Don't know why the ref hasn't give it, but it, it is obvious. So, yeah, for me, I, th- I thought VAR was got a bit of a kick in there very harshly because I think if the referee had done his job and give the penalty, the obvious penalty that he should have in the first place, then like you say, Bournemouth don't go up the other end and score, and uh, and they haven't got the psychological blow. So, I suppose it felt to me a, a little bit like they were saying. Uh, well, you know, we'll just leave it, and if we get it wrong, then VAR will correct it anyway. And I think that's one of the problems that we're seeing with it is that that kind of mindset is creeping in for the refs a little bit. They're they're sort of resting on the laurels a bit and expecting VAR to to correct any errors they make. They're not perhaps got the guts to to give these big decisions. Not something you'd normally level at Mike Dean. It's not like him to shy away from being the centre of attention. But uh, I thought that I thought it was his error. I didn't think it was any issue with the VAR. I agree with George. It was a perfect application of it for me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure I could have put that any better at all, Tom. I think there is a psychological impact you're right about them doing it. And I think even though, I think that probably answers our question about whether or not the Burnley players just kind of didn't bother trying to tackle um, or trying to stop the, the Bournemouth equaliser because they were very much of the same view. It's like, well, it doesn't matter the score. It's so obviously a handball that VAR is going to pull it back and award a penalty. And it was an interesting um <clears throat> comparison between the two and I think um, Goals on Sunday highlighted this as well look at the crowd reaction and look at the player reaction between the two incidents for the Josh King disallowed goal when he hits Billings on the beginning not one Burnley player asks for handball the crowd in the Boblo, in the Bioland, sorry not one person shouting handball nobody's looking at this at all so it's like that just goes to show how tight a decision that was and how a lot of people don't necessarily agree the handball that for, for our penalty, my God, the whole of the B.O.L. end were on their feet. Every single Burner player was going mad. And if you watch back the replays in slow motion, well, not even in slow motion, when it, after it's hit his arm, watch the keeper. Don't take your eyes off the keeper. And he almost gives himself whiplash, turning around and looking at Mike Dean straight away. So the keeper knows it's offside. Um, and like you say, everybody in the ground just knew. We, we all knew. I wasn't even I wasn't even gutted when they equalised. I was just like, well, this is obviously going to get brought back. Um, your point on um, what's it called? <laughs> I'm sorry. I've just been. I've just been. Sat, I've just been distracted by George putting show notes. Stop plugging the flipping Crouch podcast. It's it's literally putting in our show notes. Mike Dean, top lad. You really need to listen to Crouch podcast, Tom. Um, I'm just like shut up, shut up with it. Um, yeah, just the, the final point on that one. Actually, the, the the point you picked up there on referees. Um, I don't know if people have seen it, but Garth Crooks this week, and, and believe me, I'm not usually um, a promoter of this guy's views. I'm I'm not a fan of his at all. Um, but he actually made a really good point where he's saying we are now breeding. Um, a generation of referees who are bottling decisions and they're not taking responsibility for their own decisions. They're not using the pitch side monitors. They're not making 
the crucial decisions because they just think VAR will pick them up anyway. And while we still have the VAR inconsistency, and I I stress here, we don't believe that the second VAR incident was an inconsistency. I think I'm probably talking about the first. Um, <clears throat> is that you know referees do have to take responsibility because VAR just isn't getting it right, and all we in a lot of instances and all we're talking about week in week out now is VAR inconsistencies rather than referee inconsistencies um one more point on um uh, before I move on on the use of VAR and the screens um have I'm not sure that I've seen anywhere any um comments because I know we had that situation didn't we at the beginning of the season where referees were kind of being discouraged from using the pitch side monitor for fear of slowing down the game I've not seen any updates on that or why it's still not happening so if any of you have seen any interesting articles or any points on this do please tweet me tweet me and uh, send them to us so that I can have a look um George did you have a quick point on this before you wanted to move on yeah I was just gonna say I, I found it weird at the weekend that um the pitch side monitor wasn't used by the ref because they did use it a couple of weeks ago I swear in the, in the league for like the first time and it was like they'd have a word with them said you can start using them. So that's all I was going to flag up. I thought it was weird that, especially for like the law sells so on. Why hasn't the refs used the pitch time monitor now? It, it seems a strange one for me. Yeah, it does. I think I think the whole use of this is uh, is is definitely um, <laughs> weird. I think a few people as well. One final point on that second one. A few um, experts in the field, which I'm, I sometimes want to scream at my TV and just think, how are you making this point? I think a lot of them were just basically saying that um, it went too far back, and how can you go all the way back to that handball? You know, you, where do you draw a line, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It's you know, it's a different passage of play. Um, it isn't for a start. It is. It's very much the passage of pay, play. But I think if I have read this right, and again, somebody please do correct me if I've misread this. I think it's fifteen seconds. Is it? Um, that we have so and I timed it because I'm a bit of a loser um, with things like this and from handball to the Bournemouth equaliser that wasn't an equaliser was just 11 seconds so if I if I remember the rules that I read at the beginning of the season correctly then they go back 15 seconds before each goal so this was well within that passage of picks I think Chris Kamara on goals on Sunday was saying that this had gone too far back and I think he I think he went back he tried to reference back Danny Ings foul against Liverpool that wasn't given but actually I think me and my other half decided that he got the wrong instant there anyway and Cammy got himself confused so who knows but anyway for those of you who were wondering it was only 11 seconds so I think it was well within it Good evening, this is Liam Hallinan from the No Name Ever podcast. I apologise for the background noise, we're in the vintage claret. We're just after a fantastic 3-0 win, and um, as you can imagine, it's quite noisy. I'm joined by my good friend Brian. Good evening, Brian. Yeah, good evening. Good evening, Liam. Thanks for joining me. I just want to ask you a few questions for the podcast. Um, Before the match, I I was in here earlier, tensions were a little bit moderate. But what did you think personally about the team selection when it came out at two o'clock? Yeah, I thought it was great. Actually, I thought uh, I thought typical four four two. I thought really pleased that Vidra got a start after his goal last week at Southampton, which again were worldy. Yeah, met up with it. I think it, it picks itself as a team, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely agree. And 
And that led into the match itself. What did you think about the overall performance? I thought the first half, I thought Bournemouth played very well. I thought uh, Attack played some good good football. Nick Pope, great save with his legs early doors. VAR has helped us out big time. Uh, second half, probably the best second half performance that season. Outstanding. Matty Vidra, brilliant. Dwight McNeil, Jeff Hendrick, awesome. All, all, all three of them players could have been man at match. You're all, you've almost stole into my third question and I want to know who is your standout player for that match. Well, yeah, I, I think, like I said earlier, I think I personally would have gone... It, it, it's, it's a tough one. I would have said that if Dwight McNeil hadn't scored, I would have gone for Jeff Hendrick because he gets a lot of criticism and today I thought he was quite a unsung hero. But after Dwight McNeil's goal... I've got to say Dwight McNeil his performance and, and yeah. but Vidra look I mean we love him don't we yeah. I mean quite rightly he went off after about 70 odd minutes he were, were going to be knackered after not having many, many minutes right uh, but but McNeil had a couple of cracks at that shot didn't he to be fair and it went in awesome shot and if you watch it tonight on the match of the day if you watch what he does he's very clever because McNeil cuts in on the left and the goalkeepers expect him to put it to the to his right. And if you watch him, he puts it to the keeper's left. And he, I'm sure the keeper's wrong-footed. And he's just outdone him there, isn't Neil? I think you're probably right. I think Gerard was scooting in on the other side as well, just to divert a bit of attention. Bit of maturity above his years there, eh, bad Dwight, yeah. Absolutely. Superb. I think, I think we'll all look forward to that tonight, man. Cheers. Thank Brilliant. you very much. No worries, Liam. Thank you. So the only other thing then, Tom, um, to talk about, um, I, I guess we should probably just give Jay a very quick shout out for a very impressive penalty. I thought he took that very, very well and very calm as well under the circumstances. So good lad, Jay. Um, is, of course, um, Tom, our man of the moment, our absolute superstar, Dwight McNeil, who capped off a fantastic afternoon by planted an absolute scream in the back of the net which was his second attempt because he'd hit the bar um not too long before that now it's come out this week that that Dwight McNeil is now the youngest player um, beating Raheem Sterling to get to 10 assists in the Premier League which he did um at the weekend um Question from a couple of our listeners this week who I think there's about three people who all um sent me an email with the same question how much, assuming that sadly we are going to lose him potentially even as early as this summer, Tom, how much is Dwight McNeil worth? That's a good question because um, I think there's a bit of a perception that maybe sometimes we, we let some of these players go a little bit too cheaply. Um, I think by and large we've done well when we've sold. Um, Danny Ings, obviously the obvious exception, and maybe Kieran Trippier that had more to do with the contracts and things like that. Um I think sometimes there can be a tendency to look at what other players are going for and say, well, you know, Palace want whatever they want for Zaha, 80 million or something. Then we should be looking at 60 for McNeil or something. I think they're all a little bit arbitrary. I would imagine if we sold him, we'd get at least 30 mil. Um, We'd perhaps put some clauses in there. There'll be an England clause, I should think, that will come to, to pass at some point. You know, European clauses, things like that, title win clauses. Depends who we sell him to as well, I suppose. I mean, if it's someone like Man United, you can see them coming a mile off. You can usually stick twenty million on the uh, on the asking price because they're because they're not exactly famed negotiators. Um, I think 
probably be a little bit disappointed if it was a flat 30 mil. If we get 40, 50 million for him, we can get two or three players with that. I think that would be good business. There's probably quite a lot of people listening who are shouting at their various listening devices saying that they want 60, 70, 80 million. I don't think that's realistic personally, but I think if we, if we went for something between 30 and 40 with a, with a healthy selection of add-ons, that would be fair, that would be reasonable. And uh, we could re- well, say we could reinvest it. Whether we would is another question, but yeah, I think he's easily worth that. He's, uh, he's very underrated outside of Burnley, but I think with performances like that on Saturday and goals like he's got on Saturday, I think people are starting to wake up to the fact that he probably is one of the brightest young English talents out there. Yeah, he certainly is. And, and to be honest, I'm starting to get a little bit um, a bit concerned about how much he's not going under the radar at the moment. I think he seems to be being championed from the rooftops all over the place. And I kind of catch myself like screaming at the, the TV going, shh, like, stop putting him out there in the market. Um, George, how do you feel about that? I mean, would you be happy to see him go at 30? I'm going to say even with add-ons, that feels low to me. Look, I, I agree with Tom. I'm a bit pessimistic on these on this front. I'm a bit like, the Burnley board would probably sell him for 30 or 35. Obviously, in an ideal world, if I was behind the table... And it wasn't my money or my asset, you know. I'd be probably, I'd probably want forty for for McNeil. Uh, just looking around at some of the values that some players have gone for. Obviously, each case is different, but I, I agree with you, Natalie. He's definitely been getting a lot more attention recently. Uh, match of the, and half of me is really glad for him that match of the day are doing this massive feature on how amazing he was at the weekend, and he's getting all of these team of the weeks and stuff. But then the other half of me is just thinking, oh, and the, the sinking realization that. I, I do think he'll probably leave in the summer. Uh, it's a shame, really. And I think we've just got to be in the mindset of enjoying him while we have him because performance is like at the weekend. Just, I'm not seeing anything really like it at Burnley. He was absolutely unbelievable. All, all the way through that second half, uh, not just the goal. He, he was cutting inside. He was playing centre mid. He was everywhere. He's such an incredible player. And I think we've just got to really enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah, hopefully the end of this season. Wouldn't it be amazing if we end up in Europe again, or we just he just decides he's going to stay for one more season? Even if we can, even if we get him next season till January, that would be ace. I would just love it. Um, I also want to have a quick chat, Tom, about Nick Pope. Um, Nick Pope is also being talked about a bit too much in the press for my liking, and he's actually being talked about as we as we discussed on last week's pod for to take away the um, number one jersey from Jordan Pickford. Um, the weekend signalled ten clean sheets for Nick Pope. He is currently in joint first place along with Liverpool's Allison for the Golden Glove. And to put it into context, um, both Alison and Nick Pope have got 10 clean sheets. Dean Henderson, 9. Casper Schmeichel, 9. Um, Edison, 9. Ben Foster, 8. Dubravka, is that how you pronounce it? Martin Dubravka, 7. David De Gea, 7. Rui Patricio, 7. Vincent, oh, I can't pronounce this. Is it Guat? Guaita, I'm so sorry for... I think it is Guaita. Guaita, thank you so much. I'm so sorry for mispronouncing these words. I'm not great with names. Um, Seven, Jordan Pickford, six, and Burned Leno on six. Now, Tom, we are told that no keeper outside of the big six has ever won the Golden Glove. Now, that is an exciting target for Nick Pope. Yeah, that would be incredible if you want it, especially given the form that Liverpool have had this season. They've been head and shoulders above everybody else. Uh, 
I think it's not just Pope's accolade. I think it says a lot about the manager, the way the team set up. It says a lot about the defence as well. Um, you know, they've all played their part. Tarkovsky and me, obviously, are a really good centre-half pairing as well. So the team gets some credit. But yeah, Pope, an excellent keeper as well. I thought he made a couple of cracking saves on Saturday. The um, one with his legs that you mentioned at the start from from Wilson was a really good save. And, and the header that he saved from Wilson as well at the back post, just reflex and a really strong arm to get it away. Um, we spoke about the valuation for McNeil. Uh, I said I'd, I'd take 30, 40 million. With Pope, I see it a little bit differently because the, the talk's been that Chelsea are interested in him. Now, Chelsea paid, I think it was 71 million for Arisa Balaga. So I think if Chelsea do come in for Pope in the summer, we should be starting at 80 because he's a much better keeper. Um, <laughs> whether we do that is another question, but yeah, he's, he's fantastic. Uh, and I think there's a lot of question marks in the summer as to whether it should have been Heaton that we, we kept and, and Pope that we sold. I was in I was in the camp that, that wanted to keep Pope just because of his age. And, uh, and it's proven to be the right decision. I'm having another fantastic season. Yeah, I, I was very much in that camp as well. I, I think you're right about Nick Pope's valuation, especially if a side like Chelsea come into them. But I I would be very disappointed in our board if we sell Nick Pope in the summer, even for money like that. Just because to go from last season having Tom Heaton, Nick Pope, Joe Hart, and obviously the other keepers that we had in our books as well, um, <clears throat> to selling Tom Heaton because we couldn't really justify having all of those keepers on board, choosing one and, and sticking with him, to then sell him just 12 months later, I think is a very naive step in terms of our development, um, irrespective of money. I know there's going to be some listeners who are going to be screaming at me and listening to this and saying, you can't, you just can't turn down that kind of money for a side like Burnley. But I think, you know, what's it going to cost us to replace him? Um, I'm not sure what Farrell Williams, is it Pharrell Williams? Is that, is that his, his name? You know, he he may very well be working with Billy Mercer and our, um, I've just realised Pharrell Williams is a famous American rap star. I'm not sure he's on Burnley. We've got Farrell. <laughs> We've got Farrell. Pharrell Williams. I'm like, here on in, Pharrell, don't, you know, breaking news, guys. Pharrell Williams plays for Burnley. He does not. He sings songs about minions. Um, it, <laughs> it's Peacock Williams. Peacock Williams, yes. Um, so, you know, he may very well be our up-and-coming star and, and working with our um, uh, goalkeeper. I've got the giggles now. Uh, with our goalkeeping coach to come on. But I just think it's a real backward step for us to get rid of Tom Heaton and Nick Pope in back-to-back transfer windows. But let's see where we get with that. Um, Tom, coming to you first. Uh, let's finish off this week's um, analysis of that Bournemouth game with a very quick man of the match from you, please. Do I, McNeil? Is that quick enough? It certainly was. I didn't actually think you were going to listen to me. I thought it was going to be, be uh, more elaborate than that. George, man of the match from you, please. Absolutely. 100% Dwight McNeil. He was, he was just incredible in the second half. And I was buzzing that he managed to get himself a goal. And a very good one at that. Oh, excellent. Well, I am going to stick true to form and I'm going to stick with my strategy I adopted last week um, in that I'm going to give it to Matty Vidra. And that's on the basis that two votes carries the official known and ever man of the match to Dwight McNeil. So it doesn't affect the outcome. But I just I, I just want this Vidra train to keep on going, keep on churning on that track and keep, keep that smile on his face, keep that knee slide keep that little cut inside and let's get some more goals on, on the net. So I think um, I'm going to give it to Matty Vidra. Um, 
very briefly then, um, George, we are away at Newcastle at the weekend, which on the face of it started to look like it was going to be a very difficult side. But uh, Newcastle have just fallen off the pace a little bit in terms of their form and their performances. They're very solid, fully expect them to stay up this season and, and kick on. I think they've, they've actually done particularly well under Steve Bruce despite quite a lot of snobbery I thought at the outset um, when they first appointed him I think for most people through the dinosaur tag at Steve Bruce and said that that Newcastle were definitely going down but they've, they've proved their their uh, doubters wrong this season um, I just think with the form that we're in and the way we're playing our football um, for the first time in a long time I'm feeling really confident we can go to Newcastle and get a result. Yeah, I hate to dampen on your your parade here, Natalie, <laughs> but I, I just I, I'm a bit pessimistic just because we've been on such a good run of form and we are a team that goes in peaks and troughs. I just I, I don't want it to happen yet, but I, we've just got a winless run coming, surely, surely. But I, I do see Newcastle as a team we can beat this weekend. I think it'll be a hard game just because I think they want the response from losing at the weekend. But I, I just if we can beat Newcastle and then Spurs are there for the taking. And then if we win both of them and it's a massive if, God, it's going to get a bit exciting towards the end of the season. I don't want to get my hopes up, but it is very open for that top eight. I just don't want to get too excited just yet. I might cut that out of the podcast. Debbie Downer over there. Tom, give me some positivity. Tell me we're going to win away at Newcastle. Uh, I said last week probably a a dour nil-nil, but actually it's a scene away Newcastle played against Palace. They were rubbish. I don't think we've got anything to fear there. I think the last game was uh, was really scrappy because it was two big teams beefing up the pitch at each other in bad weather. But uh, we had that extra dimension to our play with with Vidra and Rodriguez up front, <clears throat> and I think that might end up being the difference. <clears throat> Excuse me. So <clears throat> I don't think it will be a big win, probably not a classic, but I can see us being the better team and, and nicking three points there easily. Yeah. Excellent. I agree. I'm feeling very confident going away at the weekend. Um, And of course, if we do manage to get a a win on Saturday, then we are on the magic 40 points. Now, I don't think anybody is actually suggesting that the Clarets are going to go down this season. Now, I think we are already safe. Um, A few people have actually already contacted me to start getting me and and actually convincing me. I think I've been turned on my view of this, um, changing my views on... The idea that you're going to need 40 points to survive this season, I was convinced for most of the season that you would do. But I think if you look at the business end of the season, you start to look at the the teams at the bottom, they have reduced the rate in which they are picking up points. So they are starting to struggle a bit down there. So I think we're probably already safe on 37, to be honest. Um, I don't think all three of those teams down there, or even two of the three, are going to get anywhere near 39 or 40 to stay up. Um, George, did you want to just have a quick point on the survival here? Uh, it wasn't quite a survival, but I just want to make a mention of our points total so far. Uh, obviously, at the weekend, there was that stat that came out. We're on more points at the moment than we were at this time in our in our season. We finished seventh. And I just think that's absolutely incredible to think about. Oh, wow. It shows what, what a good season we're having because we all look back and rightfully it was. We thought the first half of that season was absolutely out of this world. We seemed to turn up everywhere and win. But the fact that we're at the same points, or more points now than we were at this stage that season, I just think that it shows a lot about what an incredible season we're having for that little blip over Christmas. And it just shows we're improving year on year as a club. It's really impressive. And yeah, there's, there, does, there doesn't need to be any negativity for that Christmas blip anymore. We're on more points than we were in that seventh season. I think it's a, a brilliant achievement. 
Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think if you didn't look at that point and you'd not told us what that those two tallies were, if you'd have asked me whether you thought that we'd had a better season the season we finished Europe or now, I'd probably have guessed Europe just because my my memory of that season was just positive all the way through and we were riding high and there was the excitement to the European tour. And I think my memory's been tainted maybe somewhat of that just because it was so exciting. But for us to be on more points now than we were at this time that season it is definitely an incredible start and actually we're a stronger side and we're a bit more creative and we're building and god what what a difference we're now looking we've had some real roller coaster of emotions this season and quite rightly there have been times this season particularly the Villa game and a couple of other games that we could look back on as well where this time this side's really struggled um but they've, they've pulled it around they've absolutely pulled it around and they're now delivering some absolutely fantastic performances um that is all we've got time for this week um we have laughed at Eddie Howe because why wouldn't you? We've had an anatomy lesson. Uh, we've discussed our friend VAR, albeit it is always very nice to be on the winning end of, of controversial VAR decisions. And we've now decided, ignoring um, George and his pancake-induced ridiculousness, that we're going to go away and win at Newcastle at the weekend. Um, my thanks as ever go to panellists George and Tom for giving up their free time to debate Bournemouth at home with me. Thank you both. Um, to producer Matt, who gives up his time to edited all together we've had a few technical issues this week so uh, there's about three different voice files for for matt so sorry um to ban joyce for producing our and providing our music for the podcast um and as ever my main thanks go to you the listener for downloading and listening to this episode your support is very much appreciated and we would not be here without you um myself and dave will be back on friday for the preview show looking at that away tight in newcastle and the, the main show will be back next tuesday to analyze what will hopefully be the 40 point magic mark um godspeed to anybody who's traveling to newcastle at the weekend this has been the known and ever podcast until next time The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure. 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.